Hello and welcome to the Talkspot. I'm Tim Scott. I'm Peter Stockham. And this is going to be the final episode of Season 3. It's been a good season, Pete. It's gone quite quickly, actually. We've had a few excellent guests on this season, so that's definitely something we want to continue in the future. Okay, so we're doing a 5 and 30 now. Yes, finishing off with a 5 and 30. Our first paper today is by Costa et al. It's in Journal of Analytical Toxicology, and it is called Distinguishing Between Contact and Administration of Heroin from a Single Fingerprint Using High-Resolution Mass Spec. What? A fingerprint? This is where we're headed, Pete. This is the final matrix, surely. <laughs> fingerprints. <laughs> so the thing about fingerprints is there's similar issues to hair. Skin is obviously on the outside of your body, so it can be contaminated. What you want to detect is the drug that's coming from inside and it's coming out through the sweat and the fatty acids that are leaching out through your fingertip. So you'd like to see some metabolites to show that it's actually passed through the body systems. Yeah, sometimes you might just be interested in exposure, in which case it doesn't really matter where it's come from, inside or not, just like with hair. But then if you want to actually prove that someone's used it, yeah, it's a little bit more complicated. Yeah, and there's also things like secondary transfer. You could be rubbing a bit of heroin and it doesn't necessarily mean you've used it. One interesting thing about fingerprints is that some fingers are more prone to contamination than others because obviously you think about how you handle things. Your thumb and your forefinger are often used to grip, whereas your little finger really doesn't do anything. It's just hanging on there. It yeah. never gets involved. And that's quite small surface area too compared to, say, your thumb. So they're taking the whole fingerprint. They do mention one of the advantages of fingerprints is that you've got an instant identification of who gave that fingerprint because it's very hard to fake someone's sample if, there's a, if it is actually their fingerprint. So this paper is building on some previous work from the authors looking at washing procedures prior to collecting the fingerprints and they're looking at heroin. Uh, yeah, they're using drug users from a, um, in drug recovery who've stated that they've used heroin previously, recently. And so they take some fingerprints from these and they're contrasting it with a control group who they get to touch heroin in various ways. We'll go through that in a minute. But with these users, what they do is wash their hands and then get them to put on some nitrile gloves for 10 minutes to make their hands sweat, and then they can take their fingerprint on a bit of paper. And I had a, I thought, how do you get a consistent fingerprint? But they had a solution to that. They had a, they have the, they just, for the fingerprint, they just use a bit of filter paper, a square of filter paper, put it on a balance, ordinary kitchen scales, they say. They put enough pressure on the filter paper to give a weight of between 800 and 1,200 grams. So that's an interesting way to control how, how good the fingerprint is, I guess. Yeah. And any scientist who's worked in a lab knows how those nitrile gloves make your hands sweat. Sometimes they do. you come out of the lab and your hands are dripping wet. So then they had several non-user groups who they're contrasting it with. And they all of them came into contact with heroin in some way. They got them to handle some heroin. They touched two milligrams of drug, rub them between the fingers and thumbs, and then dust the excess off. So the first group, they got them to handle some heroin and no, no washing or anything like that, and then... Uh, take a fingerprint. The second group, they got them to wipe their hands with some wipes. The third group, they washed their hands with soap and water. And then the fourth group, they didn't actually handle the heroin themselves, but they just shook hands with someone who had handled the heroin and then washed their hands. And so they've got all these various controls. You'd think it would get less and less throughout these um, controls, but we'll see. So the extraction was quite simple. They just put the little square of filter paper with a fingerprint on it and some acetonitrile, vortexed it evaporated it down and reconstituted it and whacked it into an LCMS. 
and they're looking for heroin and monoacetyl morphine, but also they had in their method codeine, noscopine, acetylcholine, and morphine. So, of course, heroin is just uh, morphine that's been derivatized. So they just get opium, derivatize it with a acetic anhydride or something, and that also reacts with the residual bits of codeine that are present in the, the opium. And so that's why you get acetylcholine. So it's not a metabolite or anything that's just present there. And it's quite stable. So, they, so acetylcholine is a good indicator for heroin. So in the first group where they did no hand washing, they found all the analytes, as you'd expect. And in the group where they used some wipes, it did reduce the amount of analyte that was there. And a couple of them weren't detected, but it wasn't enough to remove it all. So the wiping was just with alcohol wipes. But then they also washed with soap and water, and that didn't remove all the heroin in six mam. So... Uh, but it did remove some of the other analytes, which are probably lower concentrations, I guess. Yeah, so it seems to be sort of getting better and better as they're washing more thoroughly. Yeah, so washing is better than the wipes. But no washing was enough to distinguish between use and exposure when you're just looking at heroin and monoacetyl morphine, even though some of the analyte, other analytes were removed, but they couldn't eliminate all of the heroin and monoacetyl morphine from the external contamination. Yeah, so that means if you're trying to test someone for drugs and you find monoacetyl morphine and heroin on their fingers, it could be from contamination, not necessarily use. So for the group that were actually known heroin users, they also took some oral fluid samples, so that was sort of a confirmatory assay just to confirm that they were actually did actually have heroin left in their system. And one of the patients said that they'd only taken morphine and they only found morphine in the oral fluid. They didn't find monoacetyl morphine. But they were found to have heroin and monoacetyl morphine in their fingerprint, oh. which is a little strange. But there's a, I guess there's a range of different explanations for this. It could be exposure on their fingers, even though they did wash their hands beforehand. Could be from previous use. Could be contamination of the morphine. If it was, you know, illicit morphine, street morphine, could have been contaminated with some heroin. Yeah. So I guess their summary was that heroin and six monoacetyl morphine couldn't be removed really no matter how much they washed afterwards. But morphine, acetylcholine, noscopine could be removed with significant washing. And they were detected in quite a few of the patients from the clinic who had apparently taken heroin. So they can be found in the fingerprints of users. So they suggest that those three compounds, morphine, acetylcholine and noscopine, can potentially aid with the interpretation of fingerprints because if they're there after washing it might be more indicative of use because they seem to be removed quite easily. Well, there you go. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? Yeah. Small study yeah. here, but uh, it's a fairly new technique, so we'll see where it goes. So the next paper we're looking at is by Anton Kaufman et al., and it's entitled Partially Overlapping Sequential Window Acquisition of All Theoretical Mass Spectra a methodology to improve the spectral quality of veterinary drugs present at low concentrations in highly complex biological matrices. And it's in rapid communications and mass spectrometry. I think we're just going to have to implement a rule that we just say the first bit of the article <laughs> from now on. Maybe we should just give the DOI from now on, Pete. We'll just read out the DOI number. And it's got a DOI of uh, 10.1002-rcm.8638. No, that's super boring. We're not going to okay. do that. But this is a really interesting article. Despite yeah. the boring DOI number, it's a very interesting article because it's talking about swath analysis, which is a, a fairly new MS technique, but uh, it's evolving so much already. Even uh, conventional swath 
is sort of becoming obsolete, which is a very strange thing to talk about conventional swath because it's a, such a new technique as it is. Yeah, well, there's lots of manufacturers doing it now through their own different names. But um, So swath stands for Sequential Window Acquisition of All Theoretical Spectra. So I think it's a bit of, bit of a tortuous acronym, but... It, we'll stick to swath. Yeah, okay. And so what that means is it's, it's a data-independent acquisition. So we're using the QTOF here. It's letting all the ions through and fragmenting them in the collision cell and then acquiring the spectra. But with SWATH, they just they don't let all the ions through. They just let small segments of the spectrum through, so you know, 10, 20, or 30 mass units, 60 mass units at a time, so that it's a little bit more specific. It's sort of like a compromise between doing auto-MSMS and the full-blown all-ions analysis. Yeah, once again, we're getting into way too many acronyms here, aren't yeah. we, Pete? There's so many. But the way I think about SWATH is kind of like when you're boarding a plane, you know, and, and they let the back rows on first, yep. and then they say, okay, now the middle rows come on, now the front rows. It's kind of like that. It is it is scanning through the whole range and letting everything through the quadrupole at some point, yep. but it's doing it in windows. So you only get, maybe you've got a 25 mass unit window, M on Z window. Yep. You only let those ones through, then it does the next lot, then the next lot, then the next lot, and so yep. on until eventually gets them all through. Yep. So the advantage of that is letting that little window through is that you've got much fewer fragment ions. So you haven't got all the fragments from all the other masses. You've only got fragments from that tiny window. So you end up with a much cleaner spectrum. That's the idea anyway. Whereas traditional data independent analysis, you're just letting it. It's, it's just a free-for-all basically. Everything's going through the quadrupole. Too much is going to the TOF. Too much. It's, yeah. it's too hard to deconvolute it. Yeah, and they actually show some spectra here, the difference between a spectra acquired through all ions and swath, and you can see the big difference in the amount of information you get. So swath's being applied to a lot of uh, different industries, and here they're looking at some liver samples, uh, cow liver samples, and they're looking for veterinary drugs, and they had a, another steroids method as well. So compared to the conventional swath where you just, you've got all these sequential windows, and they do usually overlap by one. One mass. Yeah, yeah. just so you make sure you don't miss anything on that border. But there's a lot a lot of other new swath techniques coming out. You could have smaller windows in certain regions where you know you're going to get a lot more ions coming out. You can have overlapping windows, which is what they're talking about here. You can set the windows at key M on Z values so that you don't get interference from the internal standard. To the, yeah, yeah, a lot of things you can do. So the more of these little swath windows that you have, so if you had them every 10 mass units apart, so you do 200 to 210, then 2.9 to two. 20, that sort of thing. The more of them you have, the the less time you have to spend on each of those little windows. So they've taken the approach of, let's use a wide window. So they're using 60 mass units, which is quite wide for swath. But this approach uses, they, they slightly shift the window. So they might start off at 200 to 260. The next window will be in the next cycle, will be 210 to 270. Next window will be 220 to 280. And they do this all in within three seconds. Yeah, pretty yeah, fast, right? Because yeah. you, you've got to do it fast because otherwise you're going to miss that peak. This is the compromise mm. you have to make when you're doing LC QTOF analysis like this. You you want short chromatography times, but if you do that, your peaks are only coming out for you know a few seconds at a time. So you've got to make sure that your mass spec is going to acquire data during that key point. Otherwise, you just completely miss that peak. And so the reason that they're staggering it like that and they're basically acquiring each precursor iron and the fragments six times throughout this whole cycle that they're doing is because then you can apply some deconvolution software 
it, I mean, it's, you're, you're still getting a lot of data, obviously. There's going to be heaps and heaps of data there. But it, you can deconvolute that so that if you've got the same precursor, which is in multiple windows, which you will have, because all those windows are staggered across each other, it's going to cut out a portion of the fragment ions, like the noise ions, I mean, in each one of those windows. And so once you put all that together, apply some deconvolution magic, then you can work out uh, really well which ones are the fragment ions that actually belong to that precursor. Because that's the problem with data-independent analysis. You've cut that link between the precursor and the fragments. Yes. So this is really about trying to reestablish that link in a sort of an artificial way, but uh, in a pretty clever way. Really. I think it is clever, yeah. So you end up with quite a clean spectrum, but the bit that's sort of a disadvantage here is that there's no software available to do it automatically. So this is a mm. this is a user-adapted approach to analysis, and hopefully the manufacturer will say, hey, that's a good idea. Let's reconfigure our software so that we can actually handle this data because they have to actually export all their chromatograms in spectral form and reprocess them in Excel is what I understood. Yeah, and they've written a macro to do that deconvolution because, yeah, at the moment the software just can't. Well, it's such a novel technique, I guess. The software just isn't set up to do that kind of thing. But they did find here, after they did all this deconvolution, the swath spectra were almost as clean as the data-dependent. Well, they call it PRM here, which stands for... Product Reaction Monitoring or something? Yeah, there's another acronym, yeah. which means the same thing. Great. <laughs> That's what we need. Just an MSMS spectra. Yeah, yeah. With, okay. with just the one precursor on. So it was almost as clean as just isolating that precursor ion on its own, but it was much, much cleaner than the traditional all ions fragmentation. Yeah, when you see those spectra, you can see they're very difficult to deconvolute. And especially because one of the issues which they specifically go into here is about the mass shift that can happen when you've got so many ions coming out all at once. If you've got two ions that are very close together, either it makes the mass peak, so not the chromatographic peak, but the mass peak makes it look jagged or it makes it look like not quite a proper peak or or maybe even depending on the resolution power of your instrument it can cause the two peaks to to have shift an, yeah to yeah. shift and then you just have an inaccurate mass there so all of that creates problems when you're actually trying to line up these precursor and fragment peaks and if you're setting certain thresholds in your software to filter out some of the positives then you could miss things yeah so will partially overlapping swath become a common technique I mean, this is sort of a proof of concept paper. It's not applicable to routine analysis yet because it's just too, too difficult, and the software can't do it. Well, I think it's a, I think it's a good option because, it, as I understand it, I think it enhances your sensitivity because you can spend longer on that sixty-unit mass window, even though you're skipping across it. So it avoids having, say, twenty or thirty, ten-segment windows. You've actually only got six, sixty mass. Yeah, it's, it's a neat idea. I like it. And, you know, other swath methods are being developed as well, all about trying to restore that link between the precursor and the fragment ions without the limitation of only letting one M on Z window through your quadrupole at the same time. So which one or ones will become popular? It's uh, it's natural selection, isn't it, Pete? Whatever works, people will use. That's right. And, and so... Whatever they can validate properly and show that it works in real case samples, it goes. And whatever's... Whatever the manufacturers make easy to use, that's another key thing, yeah. isn't it? Mm. If they make it easy, people will use it because uh, it's it's quick and they can understand it. But if it's too complicated to try and do it, most people aren't going to bother. I'm sure they've got communicating with manufacturers about this, trying to get them to develop their software to cope with this sort of stuff because it may be simple to do these uh, macros that they've got, but actually it was 
quite complex trying to read it. Yeah, it took me a couple of goes reading this paper actually to mm. to really grasp what they're talking about. I'd draw pictures so I understood <laughs> it. Is that what all those stick figures are over there? Yes. <laughs> yeah, so plenty more acronyms coming our way. Great. I think it should be everyone's mission out there to use a different acronym in every pump paper they publish. <laughs> Just make it different to a previous one. Even their own one. Just use different acronyms for every paper you publish. Just make one up, you reckon? Yep. Okay. What are we talking about now? The next paper is in Drug Testing and Analysis. It's by Michael Kramer and colleagues. And it's titled Detectability of Various Cannabinoids in Plasma Samples of Cannabis Users, Indicators of Recent Cannabis Use? Question mark. So the problem here is that the estimation of the time since cannabis use from the blood and serum concentrations is difficult. So it has been proposed to use cannabis THC metabolites, uh, but these can be tricky too. So the Houston's group developed an algorithm to use uh, the ratio of THC and THC acid and could deduce a probable time of cannabis use just based on those two compounds in serum. They've done an enormous amount of work on it and got, got it down to a 95% confidence interval for the specific time that they get out of it. It's not a perfect model, of course. No no mathematical model is perfect, but... People think it's pretty robust. Yeah. And there, I was actually a bit surprised to see there are 14 cannabinoids in this study. That's quite a few. So some of them are metabolites, I think, and other ones are just present in cannabis itself. So basically what they're doing in, in this paper is assuming that the Hustis model is correct... Mm -hmm. then they're looking at some data that they've got from a bunch of cases where there's THC and THC acid and calculating the time based on that model since the people have used THC and then looking at markers and seeing what might be good markers to use for recent use. So they, they don't have an objective you know, measured time since use, but they're using the Houston model to calculate that and they're just trying to see what are some good markers and then maybe there's some more work to be done after that. So there were THC and THC acid in all the cases, 355 cases. It's a decent study. Mm -hmm. They use an LCMS method to analyse these 14 components and they have to try and... The tricky bit is, I think, trying to separate each of these components because some of them are quite similar to one another in terms of their mass and retention time. So here, they've, they've got all these uh, cannabinoids that they're measuring and they're basically trying to work out what's the incidence that they see them all in these positive cases. And some of them were only detected in a couple of cases, some of them were detected in most cases. So the ones that they detected most often were one called CBC, THCA, 11-hydroxy-THC, uh, and CBD, I think. So they presented the data for each metabolite and they sort of broke them up into the concentration of THC. So there were a bunch of them that were detected. It didn't really matter what concentration of THC there was. You would always detect uh, this particular cannabinoid. But there were other ones which were only detected when there was a high concentration of THC. So they could be possible markers for recent THC use. And so they also present the data in terms of uh, the Hustis model, relative to the Hustis model, and they plot um, regression graphs to see how good the relationship is between that particular metabolite and the predicted metabolite from the Hustis model. And so after all of that, they conclude that cannabidiol, cannabinol, and cannabigerol are better markers for recent use than 11-hydroxy-THC, which is what's often measured in uh, routine labs. 
obviously it does depend on what's being consumed because different products are going to have different amounts of various cannabinoids in them and individual pharmacokinetics play a part there for the metabolites. That's what makes THC so complicated. You've got such a variable dose, you've got such a variable material to start with, then there's a time it was taken. I guess it depends what you mean by recent use as well. I mean, some people might mean by recent use within the last hour. Other people might mean within the last few hours. Others might mean within the last 24 hours. Recent is a fairly uh, vague term. Or at the time of driving, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's usually what's meant by these kind of things. So CBC was another one that they thought might have value, but it was it was found in all the cases where they had a reasonably high plasma THC concentration, but it was also found in some where there was a very low THC concentration. Yeah. So it was found across the board. Yeah, yeah. basically. So and cannabigerol was only detected in cases which had a calculated time of less than one hour since use, but it wasn't detected in all of these. And so I guess that's the trade off. Do you err more on the side of caution there or do you um you know you're going to get some false positives false negatives depending on where you sit on that line yeah so the next paper is by margalo it's in journal of analytical toxicology it's called determination of new psychoactive substances in whole blood using microwave fast derivatization and gcms so they looked at a bunch of synthetic cathinones and some other phenethylamines and so cathinones are a huge bunch of MPS. There's there's a lot of them, for sure. And and those phenethylamines as well. So there's new ones coming out still all the time. And uh, we need methods to detect them. So this is a good paper. A little bit different for us because we're now talking about a GCMS method. And when you're using GCMS, it's, it's usually pretty important to derivatize your compounds. It sort of increases your sensitivity, helps them chromatograph a little bit longer so you get better detection and that sort of thing. So they've used a derivatizing agent called MDTFA. Uh, so in this, where the microwave comes into it, they, the typical method for doing that is to put it in a heating block for half an hour, but they were actually just popping it into a microwave, all the samples into a microwave in a heating block for 90 seconds. So it saves a bit of time. So when you're developing a method like this, how do you choose which NPS you're going to incorporate in your method? Some some methods are very large and have a lot of different NPS. Some methods are more targeted. Here they're obviously looking at a particular class, just these cathinones and phenethylamines. So they looked at the number of requests that they'd had through their lab in the past and also the legislation as to which ones are actually controlled under the legislation to try and get a sense of which ones are the most likely ones they're going to find because it's you can't usually have every no, NPS in there. It's impossible as well discussed many times to keep up with the MPS that are coming out. So they've chosen 11 uh, cathinones and phenethylamines. So they chose cathinone, which is, cathinone's the, the original cathinone, isn't it? So it's present in cat. The natural product. Yeah, yeah. natural natural product that's in cat leaves. And flephedrone, bufedrone, 4-MTA, alpha-PVP, methylone, 2-CP, ethylone, pentalone, MDPV, and our all-time favourite, bromo-dragonfly. What a great name. It's for great. A- if you look at the structure, it's fantastic. It's got, it looks like um, you start off with amphetamine, so just a, just your normal amphetamine structure, and there are a whole series of compounds called the two C, the two B, and the two I compounds that came out, and they're really quite potent uh, hallucinogens. And they all had a methoxy group on the phenyl ring, and research chemists went about saying, well, what if you instead of having methoxy groups, you actually have a ring structure there, so you stabilise that little. Uh, 
shape of the molecule. So it's a very rigid shape. And it turned out to be a very, very potent um, hallucinogen that uh, lasts for days in your blood. It looks a bit like a dragonfly in the structure, doesn't it? I'm pretty sure that's why they call it, yeah. And they've got down to pretty reasonable detection limits. They compare it to different various other methods that are around the place. And you remember with with LCMS, you can always inject more. You know, you like, so you might extract 100 microliters. You can inject 100, 100 microliters reconstituted in 50 and inject 25 if you wanted to, inject half the extract. But with GC, you're really limited with the amount you inject. So to get down to those uh, detection limits, it's pretty good. But the good thing about using um, GC, they had quite a large linear range. I think the, the linear range covers, you know, a factor of up to 100. And then they um, extended the linear range even more sort of artificially by assessing whether they can dilute the samples prior to anal- analysing them. So even if you do get a high one, you can uh, dilute it and it still comes out within your curve. Yeah, so they assessed that's the dilution integrity, isn't it? That's what they assessed for there. So pretty thoroughly validated method, basically. And they're using blank blood from, we've talked about this before on the podcast, the difficulty in getting blank blood. Mm. They're getting it from a blood donation bank, uh, which is a good thing to do. And they screened it first to test if there's any drugs there. And that's very important if you're getting it from a blood bank because (laughs) blood banks don't always test for drugs, especially not the kind of drugs that forensic tox labs are looking for. Uh, So then, so in terms of the method, they just added some buffer, internal standard, homogenized, and they're using mixed mode, strong cation exchange, which is perfect for these basic compounds. Exactly. It's good stuff. It cleans it up really well. Yeah, I mean, that that strong cation exchange, so they're acidifying it first to make sure they're all, because they're quite basic, these drugs, they're making sure they're all protonated. And then because it's got that really strong uh, ion exchange bonding, you can wash it really thoroughly with some non-polar solvents. Here they're using dichloromethane and hexane. Just get off all that other garbage that's on there. So end up with a really clean extract that you derivatise in your domestic microwave. And actually, important to get a pretty clean extract if you're derivatising because otherwise you, that extract is going to look black after derivatising <laughs> if it's not very clean to start with. And actually, I was interested, Pete, to see they add a small amount of derivatising reagent. So after elution, yeah. they add a little bit of derivatising reagent then, then evaporate, and then add more, most of the derivatising reagent and then microwave it and, and derivatize it properly. I missed that. What do they do that for? Well, that's what I was wondering. They don't actually say why. Oh. I imagine maybe it's to stop evaporation of these things because they um. are quite volatile. You know, they've got uh, deuterated amphetamine in there. That's one of their internal standards, and yep. that'll evaporate pretty quickly if you've got it under a nitrogen. And so part of the elution procedure is also to use a to, – to break this bond that they've formed with the SPE, they use a basic solution. So that strips all the protons off all your analytes. So they're no longer salt, so they could be quite volatile. So maybe that is it. They just add that as a keeper. Yeah, I'm just guessing about yeah. that, but um, that's an interesting approach. And uh, it worked pretty well. Recoveries were in excess of 70%. Accuracy and precision data was good. I mean, when you're targeting one class of drugs, you can really focus on the best conditions for those compounds as opposed to a broad screening method where you've got to make some compromises. So they've really just tried to target these particular compounds and they've done it well. In terms of stability, their stability assay. Yeah, so well, some uh, some were unstable over sort of more of a long-term freeze-thaw cycles and things like that. But methylone increased by 50%. 
Yeah, uh, that's weird, isn't it? Sometimes weird stuff happens. Who knows? You can't explain it. And you just got to put it in there and hope no one makes you clarify it before they publish it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you do, you wouldn't think methylone's actually increasing. It, it's not being produced in there unless something else is degrading to it, one of the other ones. But who knows? Sometimes you get strange results. It is what it is. Yeah, it could be some sort of matrix effect as well. Who knows? I think a lot of the validation guidelines just say it shouldn't decrease by more than a certain amount, but say nothing about whether it increases. Yep. But this is a, this has happened to me before. We've definitely had, um, you know, been evaluating the stability of methods, and for some reason you get it's two hundred percent. What what is going on here? And also sometimes recovery is one hundred and ninety two hundred percent. You have to work out what's happening there, and you work out that maybe your standard's gone off or. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a flag that something else is yeah. going on, but you can't can't always work out what's going on. Science is weird. It's probably a rational explanation. We just got to take a lot of time to work out what it is. So towards the end of this paper, it says analysis of real case samples. They've done all this work, but unfortunately, they've applied it to all this case work. But as normal, once you finish the validation, the NPS disappears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hate it when that happens. Yeah. Nonetheless, important work. Yeah, if you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. So it's good to have a method. Okay, our last paper is from Forensic Science International. It's by Gunderson et al. It's titled Retrospective Screening of Synthetic Cannabinoids, Synthetic Opioids and Designer Benzodiazepines in Data Files from Forensic Postmortem Samples Analyzed by UHPLC QTOF MS from 2014 to 2018. We talked a bit about retrospective screening this season, pretty popular, and especially for NPS detection. So, but the advantage of using LCQTOF or any QTOF is that you can go back and reanalyze the data to look for drugs that you didn't know existed at the first time of the analysis. So that's what they're doing here. Yeah, and we've talked about it a lot, as you say, but there's a lot of papers being published about it and it's kind of a hot topic at the moment. People are trying to work out the best ways to do it. So here what they're doing is, as we've talked about in um, previous episodes, and actually... um, Juliet Kinua was saying about um, this is something that they do with their retrospective screening uh, in that episode we did for CAT conference. They're using a crowdsourced database. They're using high-res NPS in this case, and they're adding it to their library in order to screen. So that's that's the bit that's tricky, isn't it? It's, you, you can get this data. It's in like a text format. Yep. But you need to actually add it to your database in order to screen it efficiently. And that's a re- For some instrument vendors, it's really difficult. So we've they're using an Agile instrument who have their own... No, it works quite well. They've got a very good library system called a PCDL, another acronym. And that, although it works fine once your compound's in there, actually importing other spectral libraries is very difficult. And so they've gone to the trouble of actually manually importing high-res NPS from their tabulated Excel format. And so they've got a method already that's established. It's validated for quite a lot of drugs, but you can't have every drug in your library. And so they're adding in all these extra ones, which they don't have retention time information for, obviously, but they do have some mass information about it and so, the fragments. Yeah, mass and fragments, importantly. And so they're looking back at some past postmortem blood samples, or mostly blood anyway. I think they might have had a little bit of bile or something in there, but over a 1,000 postmortem blood samples. 1,300. It's a lot of, it's a lot of samples to go back over. And they're using data-dependent mode. So here's the here's the limitation of data-dependent mode. For It's great for identification in the first place, but it's maybe not the best for retrospective screening because you're not always going to get MSMS 
there's going to be some parent ions which it doesn't acquire MSMS. Yeah, so especially for complex samples where there's lots of peaks, it might not have time to get that MSMS of that compound you're looking for, or if that compound is very low in concentration, or it might not even decide to do an MSMS on it. Yeah, so you still can do it, but it's a bit more time-consuming because you don't have that MSMS to quickly filter out results sometimes. So you got to, it's a bit more painstaking to go through those. But they, they did that work here. So they created this new library with all these extra ones, reprocessed all these samples. So then they divided the potential positives into two groups because there were some that had an MSMS. So yep. they, they were pretty easy to um, identify what they were, or at least presumptively. And then those that didn't acquire MSMS. So all you've really got there is a parent iron. And that's where you have to start thinking about retention time as well. So if it's if your suspect says it's going to be a, a cathinone and it comes out a very late in your chromatogram, you can probably be reassured that it's not a cathinone because they always come out much earlier. So to avoid getting too many false positives for the ones which don't have MSMS, they set an area threshold. Which I mean, that's a bit of a compromise. You are going to miss some low levels perhaps, some very small peaks. But it just radically decreases the number of peaks you have to investigate. So you've got to do it that way, really. Yeah, it's just you have to have a bit of a compromise there. Familiar with that problem that you have. Yeah, and then they didn't look at anything less than 1.5 minutes in terms of retention time either because they didn't think there was anything useful going to come out there. Have we talked about their extraction method yet? They've got a very general extraction method, which is quite good. So it should cover lots, lots of different classes. So they're using a protein precipitation method. And they've been using the same method, same chromatographic commissions for a long time. So these methods are usually pretty stable. You know, for these, I mean, this this is over years, this study, four years, four to five years. So you need consistency of a method across that time, don't you? Otherwise, you're going to, you still, I mean, you could do it even if you change extraction methods. You still find things, but you can't really compare in terms of when certain drugs were being seen and so on. Yeah. And so they found some things. They found some uh, benzos and fentanyls. Yeah, that was that's the good thing about it. It actually worked. And they did also look for um, metabolites when they could, just to give a bit of further confirmation of the identification. I mean, you're only looking for you're looking for the masses, basically. You don't yeah. have the standards, but the problem is sometimes you don't know what the metabolites are going to be. I mean, fentanyls you can sort of predict. I don't think they found any fentanyl metabolites of the fentanyls, which is understandable because sometimes fentanyls at such low dose that the metabolites can be even lower. Mm. And, I mean, you don't know how they extract through your method either. They, they may or may not extract. They detected phenobut, which is possible because phenobut's actually an amphoteric compound, but their general extraction method enabled them to detect it or extract it. So that, that was the Category 1 finding, so that was the most certain identifications. Then they had this Category 2, which was these ones where they didn't have MSMS for. And most of these they they eliminated after some investigation. It was kind of a manual process of investigation. They eliminated most of them for various reasons. And the only one in the end was deemed likely, which was a phenobute, but they didn't have an MSMS to compare it. So can't can't prove that for sure. No, but they've probably got the right retention time now, so they mm. could have a fairly good idea. They left out cathinones. And interesting, we we're just talking about that paper for cathinones. They left out cathinones and phenethylamines from this one because there'd be too many false positives. I, th- I think that was the reason. They're, they're very uh, small molecules, and so you do get a lot of other masses that are very similar, especially those phenethylamines. In post-mortem samples, oh, yeah, yep. you got a lot of masses that are similar to that. So you'd, you'd probably get a huge number of hits, and it's harder to 
So, and sometimes they're highly concentrated as well. Like some of these things are produced after death. And so you're going to find a lot of false positives there. It makes it difficult to sort through the data. So, yeah, we were talking about that earlier paper about different uh, MS techniques. And maybe there's some MS techniques that are better suited for a retrospective screening than others. But the thing is, if you're doing a long study like this, you've you've been using QTOF for quite a few years. And so that means you were using an older model of an instrument before any of these new techniques were available. And so you're just not going to have the data for some of those. But, you know, fast forward five, 10 years into the future, I think new MS techniques will make this kind of retrospective screening a lot easier. Yeah. I think because they had, what did they have, 35 cases where they just had an MS match, no MS-MS compounds. But that's where DIA analyses will come into it, like SWATH. All lines, that sort of thing. Yeah. Broadband CID. Yeah. But then again, they'll also have the problem of noise. Yeah, so that's why mm. you need this uh, partially overlapping swath. Or even narrower swath windows. And as instruments get faster and faster, you better do these things. Yeah, will, it, will MS instruments ever get so fast that you actually are able to scan through with, you know, one M on Z unit resolution, Maybe. scan through all the masses... And get them in that way. I don't know. No, you need a very fast quadruple. We're a, we're a long way from that. So I'm sure there's going to be plenty more uh, papers on retrospective screening coming out over the next few years. So watch this space. Let's hope so. Okay, and that's it, Pete, for another episode and third season. Third season. Who would have thunk it? Yeah, I don't know. We, uh, we're very appreciative of, of the response of you guys listening. Uh, we've had a lot of great feedback by email, social media, and so on. And uh, we want to thank all the guests that have been on this season. Particularly this season. We had a lot of them. Mm. Yeah. So we'll be back at some stage. We were planning to be going to TAF this year in South Africa, but unfortunately that meeting has been postponed until next year. And don't forget, if you've got some suggestions for us to talk about or some guests you think might be interesting, let us know. Yeah, always open to trying new things. Contact us on Twitter at Bob's Me Dog or at Tim Scottley, ResearchGate. I'm on ResearchGate. We're on all the social media except Facebook. I think. Oh, I think we kind of – oh, Insta- Instagram. I can't – I'm not getting on Instagram. No. Oh, what's that new one as well? Snapchat. Gee, I sound old now. No. No, you sound older. It's not Snapchat. <laughs> no. It's uh... – Pinterest? <laughs> no. Pete, gee, you're going to say MySpace next. Uh, TikTok. Ah, uh, TikTok. Yeah, no. Too many, too many. I've given up. So we are still planning to do another season probably later this year, but uh, stay tuned. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.